it's a, it's a bit of a tank family joke, you know? And sometimes we sort of extend this. Then we see this BMW in yellow color and say, wow, this BMW. You know, even if you give it to me, I, I, I don't want. You know, I think that God might have had a moment, something like this, when David, King David and Solomon gave God a house. You can read the construction of God's house in uh, 1 King. It begins in uh, chapter 5 and all kinds of details are given in chapter 5, 6 and 7 about the building of the temple of the Lord, God's house. It talks about a labor force of 30,000. And then another 70,000 who do nothing but carry burdens. Another 80,000, I got a number wrong, guys, 80,000 who quarried stones. And then there were 3,300 supervisors, making a total labor force of 183,300 workers. And it has been estimated, I think, quite accurately, that at least 150,000 of these 183,000 were slaves. Well, Israel should know very well what it is like to be a slave because they were once in Egypt and now they have slaves to build the temple of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years, King Solomon was seven years in building it. So, 183,300 workers times seven years gives 1.28 million man years. That's a lot of effort. 1.28 million man years over seven years to build the temple of the Lord, the house of God. And in his prayer of dedication for the temple, Solomon had a lot to say in chapter 8. He said in verse 13, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a house for you to dwell in forever. In verse 20, For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. And I have built uh, the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In verse 27, this house that I have built, in verse 43, this house that I have built, in verse 44, this house that I have built for your name, in verse 48, the house that I have built for your name. There's a lot of I, I, I there. But I think that King Solomon also had some mixed feelings and some ambivalence even as he beheld the grand temple that he has built out of the 1.28 million man years. Because in verse 27, he did say this in his prayer of dedication. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this 1.28 million man year house that I have built for you? think there was something stirring in, in its heart. But we read at the end of chapter 6 earlier in verse 38 that it took seven years to build the temple and then the next verse that starts chapter 7 comes in like a stealth fighter. Chapter 7 verse 1. 
Solomon was building his own home, uh, building his own house 13 years. And he finished his entire house. And it took seven years to build the temple of God. 13 years, nearly twice as long to build his own palace. But you say you can't help it, right? Because he got 700 wives and 300 uh, concubines to, to fit in. I need a big palace. Come on. And I must have a beautiful temple as well, right? You see the logic, the palace, the temple? But did you know that grand as the temple was, it didn't last very long. In fact, just 34 years later, just 34 years later, it was ravaged, it was ransacked by King Shishak of Egypt. And you find that in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 onwards. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Solomon, then, king, then came his son Rehoboam. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took, also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. 34 years, that's all. So let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to the genesis of the idea of a temple. Where did it begin? It began in 2 Samuel chapter 7. From verse 1. Now when the king, when King David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant was in the tabernacle, a tent which moves around with the children of Israel. And then continue in verse 3, And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And, and Nathan read in between the lines of the king, and he jumped the gun. And so God had to correct him from verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet. And he says, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed, you, appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house, David. So, which part of 
don't build for me, uh, I build for you. Uh, did David not understand? But still, David went ahead with his temple project because once it was conceived, it, it just had a life of, of his own. It's also been said that God prohibited David from building the temple because David was a man of war and had shed blood. And therefore, the implication is that if David had not been a man of war, like Solomon, then he would have been the one to build God a temple. But God actually never did say that. It was David who said that God said that. God only said that David was a man after my own heart. And did God say that Solomon, the man who had a thousand wives and concubines, who turned his heart away from God, is more worthy to build the temple than David, the man after God's own heart? A commentator said this, it seems more likely that David came up with this idea of being a man of war uh, and not being allowed to build the temple on his own during all the man hours that he lay awake at night, obsessed with the temple project. And a clue can be found here. A clue can be found in Psalm 132. It says, it's a prayer of David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Well, you can say that David's um, heart was in the right place. Indeed, it was, uh, although maybe somewhat misguided. So, did God react like I did? Did God tell David, no, even if you give me a house, I don't want. <laughs> God wasn't ungracious uh, like me. He didn't say, you know, give me also, I don't want. Instead, I think God acquiesced. God effectively said to David and Solomon, you want it? Thy will be done. Your will be done. And so we know that the temple was built around 950 BC, 950 years before Christ. At that, it was ransacked and ravaged and then rebuilt many, many times. The first time ransacked was 34 years later. And that it was totally destroyed by the Babylonians at 587 uh, BC. The end of what is conventionally known as the first temple. And then the second temple was built, was rebuilt by Zerubbabel in 515 BC. And around about 175 BC, there was this <coughs> Roman guy, who came, Antios, uh, Antioch, Antiochus, who came and desecrated the temple. That even Jesus refer, referred to uh, the desolation, something of the desolations. And in 30 BC, King Herod, actually he... he it was said that he, he um, tore down and then he rebuilt the second temple. You would have been a third, but anyway, convention says that it's a second temple. And that second temple was totally destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the end of the temple, actually. And so the world has lived longer without a physical temple in Israel than it has. The thousands of years before Solomon built the temple, and then the temple lasted about a thousand years, and then now two thousand years since the destruction of the second temple. From 
David's obsession with getting God a house, something that God never wanted in the first place, the whole thing had a life of its own. Even though that temple has not been seen since 70 AD, in the year 70, this obsession with a physical temple has not stopped. Entire Christian and Jewish ministries have been established to assist in the building of what is now called the Third Temple. You, you just Google Third Temple, okay, and you see all kinds of websites about this Third Temple. Well, it is true that Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, uh, has a prophecy, several chapters actually, describing this Third Temple in great physical detail. Um, but I'm not really sure, um, and I could be very, very wrong here, that, that this is, might not be a figurative interpretation of of the third temple because you and I know that the Messiah has, has already come. And I don't really think that uh, some Jews will gather together and then they will re-establish this Levitical system of sacrificial worship with the third temple, that they will bring a goat into the third temple and then they will slaughter it and then the whole uh, Levitical system of worship will, 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 will be restarted. But I could be very wrong here. But anyway, now we are Christians. But we Christians also want to, want to assist in rebuilding the third temple. Why? They say to hasten the return of Jesus. And a lot is based on this passage in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. It says, Now concerning the coming of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is Paul correcting the Thessalonians that hey, Christ has not come again. This is not from us. And then Paul says from verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, from, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord, proclaiming himself to be God. This is about the Antichrist who will sit in the temple of the Lord, and then the Lord will come. Okay, that's Paul's uh, teaching and prophecy. And so, in order for the Lord to come, then the Antichrist must sit on the temple, therefore go build the temple. To hasten the Lord's return is kind of the logic that, that flows uh, from this kind of interpretation to hasten the Lord's return. But I'd much rather we just focus on this passage uh, from the word of Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, 14, I think this is much better to focus on. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So instead of helping to build the temple, why don't we say, let's go and preach the gospel, and then the end will come. Anyway, so let's now try and comb through the New Testament uh, systematically, and to get a better appreciation, what is the meaning, the temple of the Lord? First John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's where history hinges. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, and the word dwelt there is tabernacle. 
The Word of God, Jesus, tabernacle among us, became a tent among us, is now moving with us. He came in the flesh, in the incarnation, and in the spirit after the resurrection. And Christ made it clear that He was the temple of the Lord. And soon after He cleared the temple, remember, when, when He took a cord and then He made a whip and then He drove out all the merchants from the temple who were buying and selling and profiteering and, and cheating. And the people say, hey, who do you think you are? How can you just come into our temple of the Lord and you start clearing this? And in John chapter 2, from verse 19, Jesus answered them. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, this King Herod's second temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Ah, but, in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his, of his body. So Jesus interpreted the whole thing totally differently from the people who only saw it through the eyes of, uh, of physical things. Jesus said, I am the temple. You destroy me, I will rise in three days. Temple of his body. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And this Paul is referring to you, the church, corporately. Plural Christians are also the temple of the Lord. And then further, Paul turns around and refers to the individual now, the individual physical body of an individual Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your individual physical body. So today, as individual Christians, corporately as a church, with our head, Jesus Christ, we all grow into a holy temple. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 tells us this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, into a tabernacle for God by the Spirit. So individually, physically, bodily as Christians, corporately as a church, with our hate Christ, we all grow into a holy temple. Tabernacle, God is like in a tent with us. <laughs> Don't you think that sometimes it's a bit ridiculous to, or, or at least presumptuous to go around the world telling people that, hey, temple of Holy Spirit, 
temple of Holy Spirit, that God dwells in you. But, hey, this is the Word of God. God says, indeed, it is. It was meant to be like this from creation. That, that, that's how close God wants to be with us, in us. That is grace. Because in spite of our sin, God wants that. And that's grace. And grace is always ridiculous, right? That's the fulfillment of the end of 2 Samuel 7. Remember when, when God, through Nathan, said that, hey, you know, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And this house that I built for you, David, your descendants, your kingdom, is going to last forever. And here we are, temple of the Holy Spirit. We are it. Then the notion that, that man would give God a house when he never wanted one was repeated by, by Stephen before his martyrdom. You can, you can read that in Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'm just going to go through this quickly. And then Stephen even suggests that, uh, that building, a God's, building God a house was like resisting the Holy Spirit. Then Paul carries this thought further in Acts chapter 17 that when he was on Mars, he'll remember and he said, I see that you're all very religious but God made this world. He does not live in a house. Why you guys go and build, build temples? Finally, in Revelations, in the last book of the revealed scriptures of God, in the second last chapter, Revelations chapter 21, verse 22, and John saw this vision. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of, the God, for the glory of God gives it light, and its Lamb is the Lamb. So, no light, no sun, no moon, no temple, because God is all in all. So now let's go back 3,000 years. Let's go back to 950 BC. So David wants to build God a temple. God says no. God says, I will build a temple for you. David goes ahead nevertheless and commissions his son to do it. His son Solomon finishes the job in seven years but then takes another 13 to build his own temple because, and, and with mixed feelings in the end, knowing full well that God says, I cannot be contained in a temple, so why build me a temple? You really got to ask in 21st century English, so what's up, man? What's up? Why? I think it's something to be said for free will. Because where there is love, love must be free. There must be free will. Nobody can force one person to love another person. So Israel, and, and God will say to Israel, you want a king? Okay, your will be done. And, and actually, if you think about it, there's no reason why Israel could not have had a spiritual and a righteous earthly human king. They could have. But if you want to be like the kings and the kingdoms all around you, then, then God says, hey, you're going to be in trouble. I, I'm already warning you. Or God will say, Israel or David or Solomon, you want a temple? Okay, your will be done. And then God gave a warning in 1 Kings chapter 9 that, yeah, you want a temple and, and all this religious system, there must be integrity of heart 
and uprightness and obedience, then you can have a, a good temple. And the temple can be good. It can be a theological type as in a prefigure of what is to come to, to foreshadow the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, a temple, you can, can, you can learn about purity, the presence of God. You can learn about sacrifice and atonement. You can, but God gave some warning. God allowed it. So God allowed a king, God allowed a temple, God even allowed a divorce due to the hardness of man's heart. But he says, yes, divorce can under certain conditions, but you don't have to divorce. You don't have to. You are free to love. You are free to obey, to serve God or not. So let me apply the lessons of Solomon's temple this way by asking a question. Is your task a mask because you didn't ask? Solomon completed the task of building a temple, commissioned by his father, no, uh, no doubt. Had some mixed feelings in the end, as was revealed in the prayer, dedica- uh, prayer of dedication in chapter 8. I think he may well have more than mixed feelings. He may well have mixed motives. Um, I don't doubt that he wanted to honour God by building God a temple, uh, a temple, at least initially. But I think mixed in there was maybe some um, influence from religions and kings around him and what is now called royal theology. That, that task of temple building masked that human self-will and pride in him. That goes something like this. A king must have a god. And a god must also have a king to help God to rule. Then this king will have what is called a divine right to rule. A king must have a palace. But a king must also have a temple to house his god, to give God this god in control. A king is an instrument of God's rule. But it's more like a god that is domesticated in a temple is an instrument of a king's rule. That this God domesticated in a temple is safe for human consumption. A king in a king box and a God in a God box, the temple. And the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But actually it means I'm the king. I'm controlling this temple. A very nice ring to it, the word the temple of the Lord. Similarly, the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, in fact, it was, it was uh, warned. Jeremiah says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But are we now, as Christians, the temple of the Holy Spirit, not sometimes similarly deceived? We walk around with masks and we don't even know it. Why? Again, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So is your task, whatever it is you're doing, a mask 
because you didn't ask as you didn't ask God. Solomon performed this great task, but it may well have been a mask so that he will have less of a conscience problem when then he builds his palace for 700 wives and 300 concubines so that the whole world will know what a great builder Solomon was. A king blessed by God. Big temple, bigger palace, big appetite. What tasks are you performing for God now? From your daily vocation, you're studying, you're working, your leisure activities, your sports or computer games, your so-called spiritual activities, a cell group that you attend, uh, Bible studies and quiet time, serving in church, serving in some Christian organization, all these tasks, tasks. What are you performing for God now? Do these seemingly good tasks come with a mask? They are, in fact, hiding something. And don't forget that the Bible says, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. I remember running for election to be the secretary of MCCF, the Manchester Chinese Christian Fellowship. Now it's called a church. In, in old days, Manchester Chinese Christian Fellowship was basically the Chinese church in Manchester. And I was a university student and I ran for, in, they had elections, okay? So I wanted to be the secretary of the church. My task, to win the election. And then to serve, lah, of course. I lost. But for a split second, that desperately sick part of my heart came to the fore. And I told God, here I am willing to serve you. You. And I get rejected. You don't want done. Lah. Split second only. Lah. Split second only. And then I examined my own heart, you know. Hey, why do you want the whole office? Huh? Because it's nice, why? You secretary of Manchester Chinese Christian Fellowship. You know, you don't, government didn't send you or the church didn't send you all the way to England to study and then you come back not serving, right? I come back proof. Okay, job secretary, man. Look, it will look good on my CV. It will look good on my CV. And that's what was revealed to me in the election. I could have served in many other ways, you know, which I eventually did now, in some very humble ways. Okay, I was even blessed with a, a second-hand car when I was driving in, as a student. So I went to drive Sunday school children. I thought, what a humble job, right? Uh, don't be secretary, be driver also good. Right? So I drove the Sunday school kids, and, and even there, God had to show my heart. I was performing a very noble task, man. I was driving Sunday school kids to Sunday school. I wake up early, I go to their house and then I see the BMW sitting down there. Not yellow color, nice color. And then, what's the BMW sitting there and me driving my human Avenger to pick up these rich kids to go to Sunday school? What the heck? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, why should I be doing this, man? All these rich parents, there's BMW in the driveway. Huh? And then again, the heart was, was convicted. And so, even though I performed that task, it was grudging. And I've had conversations with many Christians uh, who serve in organizations and sometimes they want to sit on the board of this organization and the board of that organization. But then when you ask a little bit further, why are you so interested in this organization? Oh, I agree with the, the ethos and the tasks that they do. I say, um, in the past five years, have you done anything? Oh, no. But I want to sit on the board. I say, you haven't even got your feet wet, your hands dirty, and you say you want to sit on the board right at the top. Why? 
look good on the CVs, maybe, okay? I may be being very judgmental, but look good on the CVs. So is this task a mask? Solomon had this great temple for God, but he had 1,000 little idols in that adjacent building, his palace. And these 1,000 idols led him away from God. So there are tasks and there are masks. And we need to ask, we need to ask God to reveal the state of our hearts. David did. David asked the prophet Nathan. And after a false start, the prophet Nathan gave a very clear answer. He says, God don't need the temple. Are you doing what you're doing without even having asked God? Or after asking, you say, I just carry on right, uh, uh, doing it anyway, even if God says no or God says wait. So the task becomes a mask. I'm not saying that you stop doing all your so-called religious tasks or even your, your very um, professional uh, thing that you're doing, your jobs and all that. But I'm saying remove the mask. Remove the mask, not necessarily even before one another, but remove it before God. Ask God. The asking process is that process of purification and holiness. God, would you heal my heart and make it clean? You can well be doing exactly the same thing, but one with a wrong motive, with a, a dirty heart as it were. You can drive children and look so holy, but actually inside you're seething with, with resentment. Just ask God, heal my heart, make it clean. And as the song goes, we'll sing later, open up my eyes to the things unseen, the pomp and the grandeur of building the temple blinded Solomon and Israel to what was the real, the unseen temple of the Holy Spirit. So let God reveal our hearts, purify our motivations as we ask, as we commune with Him. Why are we here today? You know, there were times when I went to church, when I go to church, it's more like, wow, I haven't seen this guy so long, I want to catch up. And that was the first thought on your mind. Right, catch up, we're going to have lunch later and all that. But the, the, the motivation of worshipping God simply wasn't there. So we asked God to purify our hearts. We need to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when we go to the office tomorrow, we also need to work in spirit and in truth. Otherwise, what is it? We work to build a, a nest egg. We work to build our own fame and, and power. So we need to constantly examine our hearts and then as, as we need to reset it. A lot of what we do is not immoral, I'm sure. It's not incorrect, but it can be incomplete and it definitely can be impure as in the motivations of our hearts. So remember that it's not so much that, that God wants us to build something for Him, but He wants to build us. He wants to build us from the inside out, the temple of the Holy Spirit, with Christ as the cornerstone. And that is the grace that He shows us. They say that um, a house is not the same as a home. <laughs> we all know that. A house is not the same as a home. And a home is not a home if there is, even if there is a husband and a wife there, but if there is no love and no community, no communion. I just completed a, a series of sessions with a young couple preparing for marriage, and we talked about this. Like, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wife, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And you say, well, it's so easy to love your wife, right? Because she, she, she submits to you uh, as, as unto the Lord. And hey, why is it so easy for you to love 
to submit to your husband, right? Because he loved you as, as, as Christ loved the church. So the love and the submission liberates one another. We don't think, like, oh, why should I submit to my husband? I also got PhD, you know? We don't even think like that anymore. It's, it's just you're liberated because my husband loves me. And, and you don't tell the wife, hey, you must submit to me uh, because I... No, because I love you, she willingly submits. So that's why the, the, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There is love, there is grace, there is this, this equilibrium, this rested place that we are under the rule of God. Husband love your wife, wife submit to the husband. It is the rule of God. It liberates us because we are under this rule, it's, it's a resting, rested place. So, receive His love, God's love. Let Him build you up. Let Him build the temple of the Holy Spirit. Submit to God and let God love you. And then we will feel at rest, peace, shalom, and we can thank God. But if we are feeling some drudgery in our work, then we need to ask God for that rest, for that godly rule to come over our lives so that there will be times of refreshing, as the Bible tells us. So maybe just as a very, very simplistic tool, you can think of it like this. Where is your heart for the task? Okay, tomorrow some of us may be drudging going back to work. Or even now, today, maybe you have some service to do in church later on or, or, or whatever, or, or you've got to visit your sick grandmother or whatever your heart for, for the task. So let's think about our... Okay, now weekend, right? Morning is almost gone. So whatever I'm doing now, where is my heart? Or this afternoon, whatever I'm doing now, if you're sleeping, okay, sleep for God. <laughs> this afternoon, what, where is my heart? You know, what are the motivations of my heart or what, whatever it is I'm doing tonight? And then come the weekdays, okay, Mondays to, to Friday, uh, this week, what, what do I do? What do I do in the morning? What do I do in the afternoons? What, I do, what do I do at night? And, and submit that all your agenda to God. Ask God to search your heart, to realign it, to reset it, so that we are in this place of equilibrium. We are truly at rest, truly with the shalom of God, under God's rule. So David helped his son build the temple. Will you let God's Son, will you let the Lord Jesus Christ build this temple of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. So let's sing a very short chorus together as a prayer to close.
I'm Les Rice. sin against you your forgiveness your cleansing is just a prayer away and right away you come straight back into our hearts so Lord I pray would you now heal our hearts make it clean enable us to walk with you as living temples of the Holy Spirit Grant to us the shalom of God, that restedness in you, that equilibrium, that we are safe, we cannot be disturbed. God is with us. God dwells with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.